Welcome to our final installment in this series called Stories in Genesis. These have been very strong thematic stories, and by that what I mean is these stories at the very beginning of the Bible have themes in them and set up ideas that God will use throughout all the rest of the scripture. And in fact, the, the events that happened in the beginning of Genesis find their culmination in the New Testament. And you see this strong directional flow of God's plan, God's providence, God's grace and his great love for us. Well, this session will finish the portion of Genesis that's called prehistory. And so the first 11 chapters of Genesis begin with obviously the creation of the earth and the creation of humanity and the fall of humanity and the flood in chapter six and culminates with our story of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. But just to go on, beginning in chapter 12, we are introduced in the next step, if you will, of God's redemptive plan with a man named Abram, better known to us as Abraham. And Abraham comes into history at a dateable uh, event. In other words, traditional dating for Abraham is about 2000 BC, 2000 years before the time of Christ. And the 11 chapters before that are considered prehistory, much more difficult to date. And so we begin with the Abraham story in chapter 12 and what God is gonna do with him through Abraham and Isaac. And then Jacob and his brother Esau, Abraham's grandson, becomes a pivotal time. And Jacob and his 12 sons become a turning point, if you will, in the story of Genesis and in the story of humanity. And then Genesis itself ends with one of Jacob's sons named Joseph and his story and how God moves along his redemptive plan. And so in future lessons, we'll look at the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all of the people in their lives and everything that God is doing. But for this particular segment, we're gonna finish with the story of the Tower of Babel. But I'd like to connect our last lesson with the flood, Noah, in chapter six, and then the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. If you remember, we left Noah as sort of God restarting humanity, if you will. We have the creation and God's care for his universe. We have Adam and Eve and his love and care for human beings made in his image. We have the rebellion of Adam and Eve to want to be like God and to disregard God's boundaries and God's plans for them and make their own plans, if you will. And that's called the fall of humanity, the sin of humanity. And the consequences of that are exactly what God said they would be. They would be death. They would be separation from God and separation from one another. And so as you see the story of Cain and Abel and you see humanity go out and begin to fill the earth, you see violence, you see oppression, you see not only alienation from God, you see human alienation from one another. And that takes us right up to chapter six in the flood. And if you remember, one of the verses there said, God saw that human beings, their hearts were full of only evil all the time. And so you see this downward spiral of humanity. And so in the flood, God takes Noah 
and his family, brings them through the flood and reinitiates a covenant with them, an agreement. I gave you the metaphor of God taking a toddler, if you will, and beginning the process through rules and relationship to grow this toddler back into a godly woman or a godly man. And so this first covenant with Noah begins this process. It's actually a testimony to God's love to set some boundaries so that humanity can learn obedience, trust, relationship, as well as some self-discipline, which is the key to being an, an autonomous and independent human being made in God's image. Well, the seven rules that were given to Noah, according to the Jews, this is how the Jews in the Talmud understood the, basically the elements of this covenant. Now, this covenant is not made with the Jewish people. That will be Abraham and most specifically later uh, Moses. This is made with all of humanity. And so in the times before Jesus, the Jewish people understood that they had 613 commandments in the law of Moses and many, many, many other commandments that were given to them, but that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, had these seven fundamental rules. I call them the toddler rules, and that is justice, establishing ways to arbitrate disputes in a just way, to refrain from blasphemy, meaning in, uh, to follow God and not to turn away from God, refraining from idolatry, don't replace God with any other image or God, refraining from sexual immorality. This is rooted back in Genesis, the creation of one man, one woman, come together, united, be one flesh. Uh, this idea of sexual morality, the boundaries that God put around that. Refraining from murder, refraining from robbery, and then not eating meat with the blood in it. And so uh, these seven commandments were considered to be the Noahide covenant, applicable to all human beings. Well, as time goes on from chapter six, we begin to see the genealogy, we begin to see the descendants, we begin to see humanity still making the choices of Adam and Eve in the sense that ignoring the boundaries of God had placed up, ignoring even these seven rules for them for healthier living, for relational living with God. And so from chapter six to chapter 11 is the story of the expansion of humanity in that time, but also the self-centeredness and even self-absorption of humanity. And it culminates in chapter 11 with a story of something that the people do that's very significant. And this story comes down to us as the story of the Tower of Babel. Now the word Babel is a very meaningful word and the tower is set, it, it's thought to have been built inside a city. You'll see the people are planning to build a city and inside the city they're gonna build a great tower. And according to tradition, this is the city of Babylon. And I'll show you where that was and where it is today. The city of Babylon and the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babylon. But there's a play on the words in Hebrew because the word Babel sounds like the word for confusion. And so we have a, an English word to babble means to be confused and to say meaningless things, things that are not understandable. And so you see a lot of tradition 
forming around this story. And I'd like to place it in its context and pull out some of the key big ideas. But first, where are we? As we get toward uh, datable events, we certainly get toward geographically locatable events. And this begins to be locatable. This particular map that you're seeing right now is one that goes back to various ideas of where the Garden of Eden might have been. Is it possible that it was in Canaan, modern day Israel? Is it possible that it's north here in modern day Turkey or perhaps in the down here in the Fertile Crescent, Mesopotamia, in modern day Iraq. No one knows where that is, but this map is helpful in showing the area where these events in Genesis 1 through 11 are taking place. And so our story, as you see, basically assuming for a moment this is Eden, and you see the humans cast out to the east of Eden, and Cain becomes a wanderer to the east in the land of wandering. You get to chapter six, and as I draw on this, you'll see some uh, interesting uh, points that will come up out of the stories. Is It's thought that Mount Ararat, where the ark landed, according to the story of Noah, is here in modern-day Turkey. The area that we'll be looking at is called the Plain of Shinar, or the Plain of Shinar, in the scriptures, and it comes down to us later in history as the plains of Babylon. And it's this general area between the Tigris and Euphrates River. And it's somewhere in that general fertile area that is called the plain of Shinar or the plain of Babylon. And so this is the area, somewhere in this area is where this story is located sometime before the time period of Abraham. And so let's dive in to the story and I wanna break this into, it's not very long, like many of these profound events recorded in the Bible are just a handful of verses, but they're really packed with a lot of meaning. So let's begin, I wanna break this into two parts. I wanna break it into first, what are the humans doing? And then immediately after that, the text tells us what is God doing? And I wanna draw some parallels. There are literary parallels in these two pieces, but they're also counterpoints of some key ideas. I'll show you what I mean. And so we begin with Genesis chapter 11, the first four verses. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. The people after Noah all spoke the same language. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And I just showed you where that was. Think about the area between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And they said to one another, come, let us, I'm gonna highlight that, make bricks and burn them thoroughly. In other words, we're going to start a construction project. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And this is a technological advance, if you will, over just stones stacked together, even stones with some mortar between them. The idea of mass producing bricks allowed you to make structures of your own devising. It was a, a significant technological achievement. Then they said, again, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed 
over the face of the whole earth. And so I want you just to remember these three elements because you're going to see them in counterpoint as God responds to this event. So twice you see, come let us. There's no devotion to God. There's no God willing, we will do this. God told us to go populate the earth, so come let us obey God. It's come, let us do what we have decided to do. Let us build a city, and in that city, let us build a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, the idea of building a tower with the top in the heavens, some of us uh, in Western world, we're kind of literal-minded, and we thought, wow, do they really think they're gonna build uh, you know, a tower as, as tall as that? The meaning of that is not to say, we're gonna build a tower that's, you know, 4,000 feet high or a tower that goes all the way up to the clouds. Their meaning was, let us build a tower that is so great in this time that we literally look like we are gods. In other words, we can build something all the way up to the heavens, to the abode of the gods. It's self-aggrandizing. It is self-exalting. And so when it says building a tower all the way up to heaven, they're not honestly thinking we're gonna build this up to the moon or we're gonna build this up to where the gods live. They're saying, let us build something so magnificent that people look at us and say, wow, you are like gods in your control over nature. So let us, without God, let us do this for ourselves. Secondly, is we're going to make for ourselves a tower. We're gonna make for ourselves a name. And so you see this self-pride. It's our actions for our glory. Now these things should be making you a little uncomfortable at this point because you think about, wow, God is the creator and now these people are placing themselves in, we are the ultimate. Uh, beings in this world, and we are now the creators. We are going to be like gods. And so in this, you see that continued act of rebellion. It sounds substantively just like Adam and Eve in the garden. When the serpent said, you will not surely die, God didn't tell you right, he just doesn't want you to be God. He doesn't want you to be the creator. And so these people have decided that they will do these things, but they are afraid of something. They have a lot of hubris. They have a lot of pride in that we are gonna do this and we are gonna be glorified, but our fear is that we might be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We might not be important. We might not amount to anything. We might not make a difference. And you see here, humans search for meaning. Well, where was that meaning supposed to come from? By being virtually created in the image of God and in the garden communing with God and with one another and the idea of harmony. Well, with the rebellion of humanity comes a disordering of God's creation, comes a vertical break with God and a horizontal break with one another and consequently, the deep-seated meaning that we are meant to have leaves what has been called a God-shaped hole inside us. And here you see human beings happen then, still happens today, trying to fill that hole with some kind of meaning. 
And the meaning we typically try to put in there is our own pride, our own glory, our own power over others that makes us feel significant and meaningful. This story of the Tower of Babel hits at the essence of fallen humanity. This story could literally be happening in the 21st century. Now, the technology would be different, but you could write this exact same story because we're still afraid of meaningless existence. We're still trying to fill that hole that only God can fill and God was designed to fill in us with things that we can find on the earth. That's the setup for the story of the Tower of Babel. And so that's their fear. Let me show you again on a little more recent map. So where are we? Because I wanna show you some archeology. span I'm not going to show you the Tower of Babel, but I wanna show you ancient structures that this is undoubtedly what the Tower of Babel was like. This is what they're thinking about building when they build the Tower of Babel. So if you look at this map, it's also a very ancient map, but it's the time where you have the kingdoms of Akkad and Sumer. Here's the town, the city of Babylon, right there on the Euphrates River. By the way, this is a side note, but you see up here in the north on the Tigris River, Asher. So the Babylonian Empire, headquartered in Babylon, and the Assyrian Empire up in this area. And so throughout history, from shortly after Abraham all the way down uh, to, oh, easily the time of the exile in 586 BC. You see the Assyrian and Babylonian empires being hugely powerful and very much impacting God's people. And God uses these empires in his plan of redemption. So you also see a little city of Ur down here in the south and Ur comes to your mind because in chapter 12, you're gonna meet Abraham who lives in this city. And I wanna show you something that's been unearthed in that city. I'm not, again, I'm not telling you this is the Tower of Babel, but I want you to think about this when you think about the Tower of Babel. This is in Iraq and this picture on the right, this is called the Ziggurat of Ur because it's found in the region of Ur and a ziggurat Unlike a pyramid, on the bottom right, I have the pyramids. The pyramids, these pyramids date from roughly 2000, 2200 BC in Egypt. And the earliest pyramids, by the way, didn't have those smooth sides. They were, they were stepped stone structures. And if you've ever built anything with Legos, you know what I'm talking about, is you put, you know, you put down a, a layer of stone and then you put down another layer of stone. But instead of being straight up, they move in a little and they move in a little and they move in a little. And the earliest pyramids look like that. You know, they basically have the stones moving their way up. And then later they were able to carve the stones and fit the stones so that they had these beautiful smooth sides. But in earlier times, they built stepped stone structure, just a little older technology, and that's called a ziggurat. And so you see the remains of one of these in Ur, and you see some American soldiers from uh, 2010 at that. But basically, that structure stepped its way up, and it was the way of uh, technologically building towers in that era. So as you think about the Tower of Babel, I want you to think about a combination 
uh, pyramidic looking building that's got stepped stones uh, with staircase going up and it would have been a massive monument a monument, obviously, to these people's pride and achievement, but it would also typically have been a temple as well. So when you think of the Tower of Babel, I want you to think technologically about something like this ziggurat, this stepped stone structure. And so they begin to build a city and they begin to congregate there. And in the city, they begin to build this monument to self, a monument to humanity and a monument to themselves. So let's see what God thinks about this. The next verses. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. I need to stop there for a second. So think about this for a minute. There's a play here. There's, there's a little geography. So you've got human beings building this building up to the very heavens. And you see the Lord comes down to see their building. Well, needless to say, compared to God, that building is so insignificant that God comes down to see their big building. And so you, you just see the difference between these human prideful aspirations and the absolute majesty of God. And so the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, they have one language, this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, notice this. We had the let us build this, now God is saying, come let us go down. Let me stop there for a second because one of the common questions is who's God talking to? Well, one thought is, is he speaking in the plural because God is three in one, it is the Trinity. Just like in creation, let us make man in our image. Uh, second idea would be that it's simply rhetorical. Uh, kind of like royal personages would say, we will do this, called the royal we. And it's just using plural as a form of majesty. Or this could be God and the angelic beings saying, come, let us, because they are his messengers and they will carry his messengers and do his will, come let us do these actions here. I think a lot of Christians feel that they favor the first idea, that this is the Trinity. This is early, early in Genesis forecasting the nature of God himself as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But in any case, he says, come let us go down. The people said, come let us build up. And God said, come let us go down and confuse their speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there all over the face of the earth. What was their great fear? Lest we be dispersed. And so God doesn't go down and smite them. God doesn't go down and teleport half of them somewhere else. God simply touches their tongues, if you will, and now there is babble. There is confusion amongst them and what happens? And they scatter and they disperse and all of their grand plans are foiled by a simple little thing. And so they become dispersed. So this story, and this is the story, I mean, this is the story of Babel. And I wanna pull out a couple of ideas because one thing that jumps right out is that rebellion, 
the disobedience that's happening. You see this pattern of humanity. What did God command Adam and Eve to do? Go fill the earth and be fruitful and multiply and care for the earth. Then comes the flood and he makes a covenant with Noah and his family and he says, go be fruitful and fill the earth. But what are they doing here? For a desire for safety and for security and for conquest and for pride, they said, come let us not fill the earth. Let's get together and be powerful and enslave the earth. And that is the legacy of what happens from here on through humanity. But basically they have broken God's commandment and they've sought safety and security. And we do that sometimes too. If you'll pardon me just jumping forward and making a small application for us to consider about ourselves is we as Christians have also been given a command. It isn't go be fruitful and multiply through the earth. It actually is, but it's stated this way from Jesus. We call it the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you, Jesus said, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, that sounds a lot like what Adam and Eve were told to do, spiritually, to go speak. It sounds a lot like what Noah was commissioned to do in his covenant. Well, we have what's called the New Testament. That literally means the new covenant. And our covenant, God also said, go be fruitful, but be fruitful in a different way. Go make disciples of all the nation. Tell them the good news of reconciliation in Jesus Christ. And it seems to me that sometimes, if we aren't careful, because the world is so harsh, and it can be so hostile to what we are doing, that like those in Babel, we're tempted to gather together Now, we may not be tempted to build a tower to heaven and become gods ourselves. That's not my point. But my point is, is that just like they sought safety, they didn't want to be dispersed among the earth. We too sometimes seek safety over mission. And we can huddle in our, quote, monasteries. I I know that we're not monks, but if we aren't careful, we can become a, a holy huddle. I think that's the way it's stated a lot of times is we huddle together, all of us safe and secure in our beliefs and God sent us out into the world. And so Babel is a bit of a cautionary tale for us as well. The other thing that's interesting to me in this story, and you're gonna see this repeated throughout the scriptures, is this rebellion against God's commands, this desire for self, and power ends up being dispersed. We end up getting the opposite of what we're actually trying to get. And you see that over and over. I wanna give you just one simple example. If you remember the Jews, now we've gone a little later in history and Abraham's descendants, God has chosen these people. He's made a covenant with them, with Moses. And he says to them, I want you to be a beacon to the world. I want you to be priests a light to the rest of the world to show them what my holiness looks like, what a people devoted to me looks like. Well, they didn't exactly fulfill that, right? There were times when they departed from God and they went after idols and other things. And what happens to them? Well, the northern half of the Israelites in 722 
are literally dispersed, conquered and dispersed by the Assyrians, a historical event. The 10 tribes of Israel, they get lost to history. Their disobedience really resulted in them being deported by the Assyrians and scattered and completely lost to history. What about the other two tribes in the south? A little bit later, 140 years later, the Babylonians come in because they too, the Judeans, those two tribes had been unfaithful and they are sent off to Babylon in exile. It's called the diaspora, the scattering of the Jews. And so it seems to me that there's an interesting principle here that the more we try to control our destiny, the more that we rebel against what God's design for us is, the less likely we are to get what we want. We want safety, security, unity, and power. We end up being dispersed. And you see it here in the Tower of Babel. And it, as you read through the Old Testament, you read through the New Testament, you will see this play itself out over and over again. One of the other powerful lessons is this. They were self-centered to the point of self-absorption, to the point of self-glorification. And so in the Tower of Babel, you see in humanity this tendency to think about me before God. I will be God. I will not serve you, I will serve me. And we become absorbed. Self-centeredness leads to self-absorption, which inevitably leads to the devaluing of other people. And I want you to think about what you know of history and starting here, that self-absorption leads to the idea of, I can find meaning if I become more powerful. And one of the consequences of power is it corrupts us and it corrupts us in the sense of oppressing others. And if we look at human history through every culture, every culture, in human history, there is this desire to control others. Human history after the fall is not without its moments of kindness. It's not without its moments of seeing that spark of God's image in people, but written large throughout history, the story of humanity is one of brutality and oppression. And I wanna apologize for some of the pictures you're about to see, but I wanted to put this in a visual way. Th these are not doctored, this is our world. We live in a world, and this is not intended to jump on us as, oh, we're 21st century people and we're so bad, we should feel so guilty. This is the story of humanity. This is haves and have nots. This is affluence and the depths of poverty. And as much as 21st century progressive humanity, secular humanity wants to think that we have progressed. Undoubtedly, we've progressed in technology. We have the technology to heal, we have the technology to destroy at unprecedented levels. We have not progressed in the heart of humanity. I don't think there's any way to look at these pictures, to look at history, recent history, and make the argument that we aren't still trying to fill the God-shaped hole with self-glorification and self-exaltation, with power, with control. And we inevitably end up that the story of human history since the fall is the story of abject poverty and unbelievable luxury. And it starts here in 
the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is not saying God is going to make us like this. The Tower of Babel is a stark example of this is what human self-centeredness, what human sin leads to. And this is the story of humanity. This is the legacy of the Tower of Babel. Well, I wanna fast forward a little bit from this story and I wanna make two connections with the rest of the Bible. I wanna go from the book of Genesis. Now I wanna go to just after Jesus' resurrection, what I would call the center point of history. This is the culmination of what God is, we know what man's been doing since the Tower of Babel. You see the images. But what has God been doing since the Tower of Babel? God has been working on a way to reconcile humanity. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he defeats death, he overcomes sin, and makes it possible for humans to come to him. And one of the first things that happen is in Acts chapter two, and these are these 11 disciples, right, that Jesus left. They were dejected, but he said, no, I will be raised from the dead and power will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in all the earth. And you may remember this historical incident from the book of Acts. When the day of Pentecost arrived, that was a Jewish holiday. So it's about 50 days since the resurrection. They were all together in one place, talking about the disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. The word spirit means breath or wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues like fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other languages as the spirit gave them utterance. It says tongues because that's the literal word. It means they began to speak in different languages. In fact, watch what happens. Now there were in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation. They come for the, for the Jewish holiday. And at this sound, a whole multitude came together and they were really bewildered. Why? Because everybody heard them speak in their own language. Stop and think about that for a minute. Is I've got five people here and they speak a different language and you've got a disciple and they're speaking and everybody hears it in their own language. I mean, that's miraculous. That's not like taking a, a quick course online and learning how to speak another language, right? And so, in, as, as the confusion of languages at Babel dispersed humanity, this first manifestation of God in his people brings humanity together in a clever, brilliant and significant way to say that what sin dispersed, God is now going to bring together in the person of Jesus Christ. Whereas you could not understand one another and confusion reigned, now the voice of the Spirit, everyone hears it in their own tongue. And you see how the gospel undoes the rebellion of the Tower of Babel. There could have been any number 
of miracles that God shows. I personally would have chosen something really flashy. Like the disciples stood up in Jerusalem and tens of thousands were people over there and boom, fire in the air. The sun turns dark and all kinds of cataclysmic things. But think how brilliant this is. Think how God has planned this and he undoes the confusion that sin brought to humanity. And so it's a brilliant way of signaling what is happening in Jesus Christ. This is God bringing his people back together for all who place their trust in Christ can come back together in unity and undo the rebellion of humanity. That's the gospel. But there's one other piece. And now I wanna fast forward to the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible. And I wanna show you an interesting theme that connects this whole idea of the Tower of Babel. In speaking of the end times, God speaks of rebellious humanity, not those who have placed their trust in him, not those who've been reconciled, but those who seek their self, the power, the inhumanity to man, and the judgment of God is coming. And one of the ways that in this, this uh, apocalyptic literature, this very symbolic literature, what it's telling you is what God's gonna do, and it's gonna tell you in a dramatic, symbolic way. And there are these seven bowls of God's justice, seven bowls of God's wrath, seven bowls of judgment being poured out on the earth. And listen to this. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Now in apocalyptic literature, the idea of sexual immorality and the idea of spiritual immorality, meaning sexual immorality, departing from the sexual mores, spiritual immorality, idols, worshiping something besides God. Those two are used interchangeably. And so when it talks about the great prostitute, it's talking about this person who led people into sexual immorality, but also led them into spiritual immorality to follow other gods. Who is this prostitute? With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit, this is a vision, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. So this is a rebellion against God. It's seven heads, 10 horns, and we can interpret all that. But I want you to think about this. On the forehead of this woman was written this, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of God's people. And so why is this personification, this person at the end times, the one who has led God's people astray. And you're gonna find that Satan, the great deceiver is behind this. Why is she called Babylon? Well, I want you to think about what we just learned about the city of Babylon and the Tower of Babel. What is happening there? It is people turning away from God to worship self. And this is the thematic. Now, we've all done that maybe not as in such a flamboyant manner, but Babylon comes to signify the powers of the earth that seek to glorify themselves and turn away from God. And so in the book of Revelation, as you talk about God's final judgment and justice, he names that as Babylon the Great. 
And then what happens? After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out in a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for unclean spirits and for everything else unclean. For the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, in a single hour, your judgment has come. So you see Babel in the beginning and human rebellion, a symbol of human rebellion against God. You see God's unrelenting compassion to make a way for reconciliation in the person of Christ and undo the rebellion through the blood of Jesus Christ. And in the end, the justice of God comes on those who have perpetrated the oppression and the power and the suffering and the violence. Judgment is typically thought of us as a negative word, like, oh, God's judgment, that doesn't seem very nice. No, that's absolutely essential. A God who does not have the power or the desire to do justice is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible demands justice. Victims demand justice. We demand a just God. A God who loves us enough to send his only son and he loves us enough to judge Babylon the Great. And so this beautiful little story that begins in Genesis 11 and continues in the New Testament and once again finds its denouement, its ending in the book of Revelation is the story of the gospel. And some of the key ideas I really want you to take away from this whole first portion of Genesis is this. God is the creator and the sustainer. He's not distant. He's not an absentee landlord. He loves us. God loves us so much. Each of us before we were born cared so much about us that through all of the disobedience and all of the violence, read the Old Testament, read secular history of humanity. Through all of that, God is finding a way and making a way for us to come home. And God will bring justice to the earth. And that together is the beautiful story of the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you very much for being with us for this series. And as a matter of fact, we will begin a new series on March 2nd. And I'd like to continue our series in stories. And we will look at some of the other great stories of the Bible. And now that we have this foundation, I'd like to start building on the foundation. I'd like you to see how all the rest of the Bible builds together until God has formed this beautiful, beautiful temple that he's building with us. God bless you.